Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Matt Crumpton. His last name is spelled C-R-U-M-P-T-O-N. And he operates the Solving JFK podcast. Really well done, very well researched podcast. Kind of like a fresh look and looks into the cases and, and certain issues regarding the JFK assassination on a episode-by-episode basis. So I'll put a link to that podcast in the show notes. He's also in... Uh, a book that just came out, and the title of that book is The JFK Assassination Chokeholds that proved there was a conspiracy, and he's in there with James D. Eugenio and a couple other authors, so you can check that out. We can cover a little bit about that, and then he's also in a new movie that came out, and I have not watched it, but I need to check that out. It's on my list of things to watch. The title of the documentary is JFK, What the Doctor Saw, so he's in that. He's been very busy, so I'm delighted to have him just uh, two days before the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination. So, Matt Crumpton, welcome to the show. Thanks. I appreciate it, William. It's uh, good to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Cool. And I really like your style and the way that you put together your podcast. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your background for people who haven't heard your name and kind of what led you up to doing all this work on JFK. Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm an attorney by trade, and you know, I just try to approach this case in the same way that you know you would approach any other criminal case i'm not a criminal attorney by trade but you know i i was a litigator and that, that's kind of how i approach it specifically i always want to know what's the citation you know people once you study this case people always come at you with you know different theories this this and this okay wow that sounds very interesting what are you relying on for that that's always what i'm interested in what's the citation Right. And so there's a lot like I think when you're podcast, you kind of work against the Warren Commission as its statement. So you're kind of saying, what did the Warren Commission's report get right or wrong? And it's kind of a step by step basis and kind of what uh, and that is was the Bible. Like, I think it's almost like an encyclopedia of information. What was it like kind of working off of that? Yeah, uh, the, the Warren report is is I mean, the problem is it's just such a huge case. And you know, what I saw out there, the reason that I took the time and actually did this podcast is because I was just surprised that no one else had done uh, done it in this format, in this matter, in this in this way. Uh, there's a lot of like individual episodes uh, for podcasts, but there, there weren't any that was really going issue by issue comparing what each side had to say. Uh, I later I later learned that there actually was a guy named uh, Jeff Crudell, uh, JFK, the enduring secret. He was kind of doing something similar. And by the way, Jeff and I have become good friends now, which is, which is actually really cool to see. But, um, at any rate, uh, I just wanted to put it out there point by point because I thought I had, you know, really had my head around what was going on. I thought it was absolutely clear that like, look, this is a conspiracy. We got to figure out who did it. We got to have new hearings, all this, all these things. And then I started, then I went on to these Facebook groups during the pandemic as I just sort of dove in more. And I saw that there are, there is vociferous fighting uh, over all of these issues and they're still disputed. And I think sometimes, you know, if you land on the, on the Warren report critic or conspiracy side of things, uh, it's easy to just bypass the, the other side and write them off. But the reality is that, you're going to have to refute their points and they make good points sometimes. And sometimes, um, uh, you know, you may need the rest of that, of their information for what they're saying to fine tune and, and sort of 
triangulate the truth really right so 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 anyway um that's kind of my approach and i get attacked for you know i get called a fed because i even discuss you know what other people are saying and i get called you know obviously i end up landing on the warren report critic side substantively especially as it relates to the medical evidence in season one so i you know I get all those all those names too, so <laughs> it's fun. Right. So, yeah, it's it's a passionate community, the uh, JFK researchers, I would say, and there's still guys out there, kind of supporting the Warren Commission line. I think one of the guys just put out a book recently, uh, Litwin, I think was his name. Yeah, yeah, Fred Litwin, and I would love to have them on. I tried to uh, actually set up a a debate between uh, Diogenio and Posner at first. Um, uh, I actually, I never reached out to Fred Litwin about that. Um, but, uh, but Posner never got back to us on the debate side of things, but I think, it, I, I think it's good to have an open dialogue and I think it's good for people to talk to one another. And if you go on some of these Facebook groups, it kind of ends up looking like politics. It's just like pure hate and disdain for the other side. My whole thing is like, when I do start to have people on that you know the posners and fred litwins of the world i'm much more interested in clearly articulating exactly what we disagree about uh rather than trying to convince or persuade one another because i don't think some of these people are persuadable anymore but it is useful to figure out um what uh you know where do we part ways what inference am, am i inferring something and you're inferring something different from the same set of facts that we're looking at right Right. Right. So it's still going on. Um, and when you kind of you went down the the piece by piece, small, you know, 30 minute episodes, did you kind of discover stuff? Was it kind of a path of discovery or did you kind of know what you're gonna put in that? Sure. Well, I uh I you know, I've been reading these books for about 20 years and sort of studying. Uh, I did read Case Clothes when it came out came out. I read JFK and the Unspeakable. I read uh, Diogenio's book, uh, Reclaiming Parkland, and a, bu a bunch of other ones here and there over the years. Accessories after the fact, uh, you know, the last investigation, Gate and Fonzie. But so I went back and and I realized, look, if I'm serious about doing this in a legal way, I need to have like a legal outline and I need to have my citations all in an outline. So I reread. Um, uh, a few of the key, the, the core books um, and made an outline for that. And then when I, what I would do is I would try to find the uh, arguments for both sides. So a lot of times I would go to Bugliosi, go to his index and find what he had to say about something. If I thought it was like, Hey, this fact looks really good for Warren report critics. What's Bugliosi say about this? Sometimes he had a good point. A lot of times he didn't have a good point. Um, so I constructed an outline that had the arguments from both sides in it. And then I would put the episodes together from that outline. And when it came time to actually put the episodes together, I would realize, wait a minute, this all hinges on this one little tiny thing. Let me go spend three hours going down that rabbit hole when I thought I'd already come up for air. Um, but, but that's kind of my general, my general process. And then people email me things and I put that on an outline too. And I just, I try to just not lose any of the information that's coming at me, you know? Right. And you're kind of in an advantageous time to look back at it because there's been so much research pro and con. And you mentioned the government investigation. Sometimes those are overlooked. Am I right. talking about those? 
about the government investigation. Yeah, like Church, Rockefeller. Yeah. I mean, Warren. We yeah, yeah. About. So, um, yeah, you get the Warren report. Invest. You get the Warren Warren Commission that led to the Warren report. Um, then you have the stuff Garrison was doing in New Orleans, which we'll cover this season on the podcast. Um, and then you have uh, a little after that, you have something that people almost never talk about, which is the Clark panel. You familiar with the Clark panel? I don't even know what that um, is. No. Ramsey Clark, the attorney general under LBJ in 1968, I believe, uh, put together a panel of four doctors who looked at the autopsy evidence. And uh, basically they, they looked at the pictures and the documents from the autopsy. That's all they looked at. And uh, and the X-rays, and they concluded that the uh, the bullet that struck Kennedy's head was not at the bottom of his head, like they like they say in the Warren report, and like the doctors in the autopsy say. Instead, it was four inches higher at his cowlick, and they say, "Oh, there's a photo of it." I don't know how these doctors missed it. So so that movement in the Clark panel of uh, which Bugliosi referred to as. What you mean the four inches? <laughs> that's, wow. he, he dismissed he, it like uh, that. But that's what the HSCA would go on to rely upon. Uh, when in the entire time the original doctors, Boswell and Humes, were vociferously against uh, the HSCA panel. So when someone says, Hey, I'm, I'm certain that, that Oswald struck Kennedy in the head from behind, the question is, well, which are you the OG Warren report guy? Are you, do you believe with the doctors or do you believe the Clark panel revision that the HSC medical panel uh, agreed to with the exception of Sarah Wecht? But anyway, then it moves on to, you know, the, the Pike committee and the church committee. That was great for finding out in particular uh, about the CIA's ties to the mafia when it comes to trying to kill Castro and other mafia ties. And I, I'm going to, dive more into that as, as we get going, uh, the, you know, the bodies of evidence that I'm the most familiar with are the ones that I've, that I've deep, you know, done the deep dive on. And so pretty much the, the medical evidence, the ballistics, the fingerprints, all the, the timing, all the JD Tippett stuff, all those crazy things. Um, but when it comes to, uh, the mafia and the CIA, we haven't really got into that. A lot of that's going to be season three. Se season two is who was Oswald really? So as it touches on upon him, we'll be we'll be dealing with it. But back to the government investigations, you know, probably. So the HSCA was interesting. It decided it determined that hey, you know, there was a you know, the HSCA's determination was uh, the Warren report was correct, except that there was also a shot from the front that missed, and we don't know who did it. Have a nice day. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that. So it's the House Subcommittee on Assassinations, right? That was uh, mid seventies. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah, House Select Committee on Assassinations, nineteen seventy-eight. Basically, it was the result of of uh, Robert Grodin um, and Dick Gregory showing the uh, the Zapruder film on on Geraldo in nineteen seventy-four. I think it was that ultimately set that those events into motion. But, but the HSCA did un, uh, create some really good evidence, and there were some really great investigators in the HSCA, like this guy named Gaten Fonzi, uh, that, that basically if you look at the HSCA files, and especially a lot of the declassified files, um, it turns out that was an interesting investigation. But you know the acoustics that, that it's based on have been somewhat um, undermined, I will say, 
uh, I don't have like strong opinion about it necessarily, but you know, the, there are, there's an expert on the other side that says, Hey, these, these, you know, acoustics are no good. And Oh, by the way, the cop that, that you're relying on the recording for may not even have been in Dealey Plaza at the time. So there, there are some question marks around it. Um, and you know, the, the biggest thing is like, they just rubber stamped the Warren report and then threw a conspiracy on top of it. Like it, what it, and, and when you read the accounts from people who are involved in it, um, it becomes clear that the conclusion of the HSCA was a political document because, because it, you know, a lot of people wanted a real investigation and, and, and a lot of people were going to stop a real investigation at all costs. And so they, they basically, the compromise was let's do a little bit of investigating and say that, uh, you know, the CIA lied about, you know, covering up, uh, their relations to organized crime and attempts to kill Castro. But otherwise we don't know. There's probably a conspiracy. Right. To do. It's kind of like a limited, limited admission, but not too much, hang you know, out. not too many names. Yeah, limited hangout, as they say. Yeah. But there were also kind of suspicious early demises of people around the 70s. So even right. this arc from 63 well, to... During the during the HSCA, a lot of people died that were involved in the case. Johnny Rosselli was found in a floating in a, a you know, a steel drum in, in, uh, on the ocean. And who else? Uh, I mean, George DeMornschild. George DeMornschild yeah. uh, was was killed. Uh, I think right shortly after he was contacted by uh, an investigator by Joe by Fonzie actually, Gaten Fonzie. There's um, a really interesting exchange between him and Poppy Bush. Uh, mm. It's almost like he's pleading for his life in the uh, Family of Secrets book. George DeMornschild writes a letter to him saying, "Hey, we're good, right? Like no one's, you know, what? <laughs> can you?" There I'm, I'm, it's like supplic- there's a sense of supplication in that letter almost yeah, like sure. i'm on board i've not done anything wrong but almost it's on subtextual it's really an right. interesting letter it shows we'll how about, subtle of a thinker he was yeah yeah we'll talk about george bush eventually um i'll, I'll certainly cover him in season three i would imagine but i think it's i think that my opinion is like anything else if you're certain that, you know, he's involved or whatever, you should listen to the arguments of people on the other side. And if you're certain he's not the same thing, like you should just examine the information. All right. But then back to the government uh, investigations, the ARRB is the last one assassination records review board, which was created as a result of the JFK records act uh, in the wake of Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. And um, that one is basically what's responsible for all the documents that we have throughout today. And it's also responsible for um these incredible depositions that took place uh uh when you know folks on the uh, on the ARRB were able to call in any witnesses and depose them and subpoena them and and ask them questions about their original testimony and especially as it relates to the medical evidence it, there's some fascinating stuff in the ARRB um th- these items are pointed out in uh and the film JFK revisited, which was the script of it was written by my friend, James D. Eugenio. That's the Oliver Stone film. Uh, that that came just out. came out, right? Didn't it come out I, in the last a couple of years? years ago? Yeah. But they really, re- they really um, go over all the ARRB stuff. And specifically what we find is that um, the John Stringer, the guy that took pictures of the autopsy, 
the official autopsy photographer. He's shown pictures of the brain. He's shown the autopsy photo. And he straight up says, these are not the ones I took. I know this because we don't take pictures of a brain from the bottom. We don't take basilar views. This is a brain. This is a view from the bottom. Also, the one that I took was sectioned. It was all cut up. This one looks like it's perfect. Also, the one that I took, uh, you know, the, it was all blown out and the cerebellum was blown out. And this one looks like it's pretty much intact. Also, uh, I used ANSCO film. And this is a different type of film altogether. Wow. <laughs> Same wow. thing. Sandra Spencer, they interview her. Her job is she was responsible for processing the film used in the autopsy. She brought uh, the type of film that she used to, the, the paper that, that they would print it on with her to her deposition because she had extra somehow, right? And and she and she basically was able to lay out as to how this is printed on different paper. The type of paper I use was this other type of paper. And no, these are not the same photos. She said the same thing that... um. That's that John Stringer said. So the, they're two of the key witnesses in the ARRB. Um, and so, uh, so yeah. that that indicates that there's even more deceit involved in the record keeping than maybe people knew up to that time. Well, here's the here's the case in a nutshell. I'm going to give you the case in a nutshell, and it's more complicated than this. And people that know a lot about it can rightly criticize me, but I, I'll I will defend my point still. Um, it really comes down to, it's a lot of questions. There's a thousand issues, literally a thousand disputed issues. But it really, the way to summarize it is, what's more likely? Is it more likely that the Parkland doctors and a lot of the professionals at Bethesda, a total of 43, 43, 43 people whose initial statements were that he had a big hole in the right rear of his head, Okay. So that's on one side. We have 43 people saying the same thing in their initial statements. Okay. The, on the other side of the ball, we have the autopsy record and the autopsy photographs and x-rays. It's not possible for both of those things to be true. There's not a possible because in the autopsy, uh, it shows that the back of the head is fully intact, hmm. fully intact. The autopsy says that the side of the head was blown out up here. It was just this, right? So, um, but you know, the problem there's, so, so it just comes down to what do you believe? Like kind of where's the Occam's razor on that one. And, you know, to me, I go, wow, 43 people all said the same thing. It sounds like they're probably right. But if that's true, I would expect there to be some proof of fraudulent autopsy. If the autopsy is not true, like you can't just say this government record is not true. Is there any evidence that it's not true? And the answer is Yes. John Stringer, Sandra Spencer. There's a guy named David Mantic. He's a uh, radiologist, oncologist, physicist. He's got a lot of PhDs. And he has this device called an optical densitometer. It's an X-ray device that lets you see the density of bone based on basically how bright it is in the X-ray. And he took that to the National Archives to look at the original X-ray uh, that they have on file there. And... And by the way, it might be a copy of an x-ray, but whatever it is they have on file at the National Archives. And it the optical densitometer showed that the bottom right section of the head was like 2,500 times brighter than any other section, such that like it was too dense for it to have been real because oh, bone wow. can be that dense. Um, and same thing, he, he took a stereoscope 
uh, to, and looked at the photos of the back of the head. And a stereoscope basically makes things be a photo be in 3D. Okay. And that photo was not in 3D. It was flat at the back of the head in this one little section, which appeared that like there had been a matte insert of hair where it was really blown out. So, um, you know, that's just one guy talking. So what I expected when I went to uh, Vincent Bugliosi's index for reclaiming history and I looked up David Mantic, I expected Bugliosi to point me to another expert who has countered David Mantic and said, no, he's wrong. That's not what an optical densitometer tells you. And, you know, I expected there to be like an argument. You know, you got one expert, let's say an expert on the other side. And Mantic's, own, uh, I'm sorry, Bugliosi's comment on David Mantic, the only thing he said uh, in his book about Mantic was uh, he's a very, very smart guy. He's won all these, you know, awards. He's he's a brilliant physicist. And this is his job is to study x-rays. And he he would be the guy that would know about this. But if you, so that's, so he, so he praises him for one paragraph. And the other paragraph, he just goes, but if you believe that there's a conspiracy, you're already crazy and you're going to believe crazy things. And I don't know how to help you. Like, so the point is he doesn't address the substance. And once I saw that, I was like, wow. So, so there you go. That's what it comes down to. Is it the Parkland doctors or is it the autopsy? Which one's right? And uh, there's nothing that shows that the, the argument against the Parkland doctors is, Hey, their job wasn't to do an autopsy. And we have people whose job it was to do an autopsy. Um, but, you know, if you have 43 people all saying the same thing, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe, the, or, or did they have a mass hallucination? <laughs> but know? that was also right at the time of the assassination too. So it right. was like a, a first them, blush. Yeah. Yeah. And some of them later would go back and change their statements, but what are we to believe the first thing they said or the thing that they said later when they were spoken to by others, you know what I mean? Right. And there's specific so, examples of specific people that are let, you know, Elmer, uh, I believe his name is Elmer Todd. No, El Elmer Moore. Elmer Moore is the secret service agent who allegedly confessed to some other guy to James Gokenauer. And James Gokenauer came forward to the HSCA to say, Elmer Moore told me that it was his job to go to Dr. Perry and tell him to be quiet. And, uh, of course, Elmer Moore came forward to the HSCA and said, no, it's, this guy's lying, right? So then whatever. Then there's another guy named Donald Miller, who Dr. Perry worked with at the University of Washington years later, who said that Dr. Perry did tell him that Elmer Moore uh, uh, pressured him to, to not speak anymore on behalf of the Secret Service. So it was, you know, so it just comes down to like, now, if you're someone who doesn't, you know, who, who believes the Warren report, you just completely write off all these people right. as crazies. And that's, that's your game. You stick on it and you go liar. I'm sticking with the other people because, because it's probably not true. And if I continue to just reflexively assume everyone's lying and everyone's in it for a book deal, even if they don't write a book, then it's, it's it does make things cleaner and easier. I will say. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, some people are, I think that there's some, disingenuous people in the JFK research community who are there for some other reason that may not be honest, like they don't have an integrity to listen to some of these other voices and so many matters too. Like they discount so much evidence, so much firsthand evidence and stuff like that. I've seen it over right. and over again. Um, so you have, so this was what is like the, all of these doctors talking is what is contained in JFK, what the doctors saw. 
Yeah, that, that's a good one. I mean, it really, I've, I've, I'm very lucky to be in this. I mean, I'll say like, there are so many people who have been studying this case longer than me that know more than me that I'm sure would have loved to have had a chance to appear in a, you know, big documentary like this. And I just got lucky. Like the, the lady that was the director, Barbara, she, um, she was looking for podcasts while she was going on runs and she came across my podcast and it's that simple. And she reached out to me. So, so that was pretty cool. I went to Cleveland and filmed for a, a day and, uh, and just kind of talked through a bunch of stuff. But what, what they have is original footage that has never been seen before of a reunion of the Parkland doctors from, I want to say the nineties might've been early two thousands, but it was, there was a, most of them were still alive. And, uh, and, and so we take that and put it with a bunch of other footage and then have, have myself and a couple other people explain the context versus, uh, Bethesda. So you have Parkland on one hand and then Bethesda on the other hand, Parkland is, you know, hole in the back of the head. Uh, Bethesda is, um, uh, Maryland. Yeah. That's the, uh, what, what hospital is that? It's That's like a, a military hospital, right? Yeah, it's the Bethesda Naval Medical Center. Naval um, but, but uh, you know, what's the thing about that is, okay, if the shot, if, if it really blew off the front of his head, like the x-ray show, for example, and think about the trajectory, whether it's coming in the back or whether it's coming, whether it's the Warren Report position or the Clark panel position, you, you pick your poison, <laughs> but whatever it is, where's that bullet going to enter from? I mean, I think... The idea is that it comes, it kind of comes on the side and then the knocks out the side and whatever. And, you know, it's kind of unclear, but the point is there would be a noticeable uh, damage to the front of the president's head in front of his ear. Okay. Like in, in the end that, that that's one criticism, you know, big criticism I have of, you know, you know, the, the idea that there was a shot from the back that was like the first shot, um, you don't see in those photos of the autopsy, the damage is all behind the ear. We don't see anything in front of his ear. So interesting. So it's a lot. What what was uh, Barbara's motivation in making this particular documentary? It is. I I want to say that. Um, so she did a documentary on Ghislaine Maxwell. Oh, okay. So she kind of does interesting type documentaries like that. Um, she uh i want to say somebody at cbs came to her with the with the idea and uh, the footage and said hey we have this footage can you put a documentary around it i think that's kind of how the conversation went you know what i mean interesting right yeah but uh, um yeah she's she's great and uh i'm gonna have her on my podcast later this year and honestly her opinions were so good uh about the case that and I knew which way she was taking it. I j- had genuine concerns that whether or not this was going to get to come out, and there was a period of time when it wasn't clear that it was going to get to come out. Um, and uh, they got it over the goal line for whatever reason. The people at Paramount Plus approved it, and wow, they let her tell the story. That's cool. Yeah, I mean that's uh that's a definitely a risk, especially with some of these bigger operations. It's Viacom, yeah. At the end yeah, of the day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and and uh and the only thing I have so there's a guy named the two this is really funny it's actually hilarious um there are two main people uh, in this in the documentary that it's my job to moderate this guy you see with the yellow shirt and the and the navy blazer his name's Doug Horn 
He's sort of like the conspiracy guy, all right? But he's not just some guy. He was the head of the of the military records for the Assassination Records Review Board. Okay? Wow. And he and he supports and he was right there when all this stuff was happening. And he he kind of supports some theories that, you know, I think are a little more out there that people would argue, even though I agree with almost all of the things he's saying. There's one area in particular where I have a disagreement with him that I had to kind of highlight in the film. I'll come back to. And then the other guy is Dr. Michael Bodden, who's the head of the HSCA medical panel. And he's the, uh, he's sort of the official story guy. So they, so she brought in me to be the guy in the middle. Who's like, well, there was a conspiracy, but it's not the way a conspiracy guy says it. And it's not the way that, you know, and the official story guy is wrong. It's like, Oh, you want me to tell Dr. Michael Bodden he's wrong. And you want me to tell the guy who was there, who's responsible for all the medical records of the ARRB? Okay, I don't. We'll see. But Doug Horn, who I met this weekend, uh, or I'm sorry, this past week in Pittsburgh, um, he he believes that there was a helicopter that took a uh, that took the body in a cheap shipping casket from Andrews Air Force Base to Bethesda. While the bronze ceremonial casket went in a motorcade and took an extra like 45 minutes to get there. And that's when they had time to kind of like do some body alteration and stuff like that. And my whole, and just zooming into the details on it, there's just no evidence for a helicopter. And so I'm just not, now there is evidence of an earlier arrival. Okay. But it's not super clear. And my whole thing is like, I'm okay with there being some mystery. And I just don't want to, if I, if I put my stamp behind something, I just want there to be absolute proof behind it or some proof, something that I can point to and go, well, I think this happened. And the answer can't be because that would have had to happen if the other things in my theory happened. Well, you can't, now you're just making things up. You just got to stick to the facts. That's kind of what I try to focus on. No, but there is evidence that like the body was delayed and clearly tampered with and all that stuff. So that's, you've got, yeah, you've got, um, Dennis David says that that uh, the body arrived in a cheap shipping casket that came in a black car. Um, and there's also something called the Boyajan report that says that the body arrived at 635. Um, there's just nothing that there's just nothing about a helicopter. But I'm going to talk to Doug about it, and maybe I'm wrong. And if I am wrong, I will uh, I will say it. Uh, but but Doug's a good guy and. We, I was concerned we, he would be mad at me, <laughs> but he's not. We're good. What's your take on Tippett? Why did he get shot and who shot him? I mean, there's so mm-hmm. many different stories I've heard, like Carrie Thornley or you know something like that. What's your position? Yeah. Um, well, the the Tippett the Tippett case is uh, is interesting. Uh, um, you have the first thing that jumps out to me about the Tippett case is the timing. Okay. So the, people make a lot about the, um, you know, the distance of the walk from Oswald's rooming house to where Tippett was killed uh, at 10th and Patton. And, you know, it's, it's true that it is, it's not the easiest walk in the world. I've heard some people say it's, you know, 18 minutes, 14 minutes. It's eight tenths of a mile. Okay. So you know how long it takes you to go a mile. So to me, it's, it's about it's about ten to twelve minutes, okay, maybe thirteen minutes. So 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 I I don't think it takes as long as some people say, okay. But the question is, how much time would Oswald have had available, uh, given the timeline that we know from the Warren 
commission. Okay. So using their own timeline, he would have left around 103 or 104, according to Erlene Roberts from the rooming house. Um, but, but then we also have him uh, arriving between one o'clock and one Oh seven at the Texas theater, according to Butch Burroughs. Right. Um, so, so there's that, how can he be in two places at the same time? And then back to the typical crime scene, we got Helen Markham at about, you know, saying it happened around, you know, 1106, 1107. We got, uh, uh, this woman whose name I forget at the moment, who looked at the clock that was on top of her television and said it happened. I'm sorry, not 11, one, one Oh six, one Oh seven. Uh, this lady, she looked at the clock on top of her TV and it said it was, I want to say like one Oh six. Um, and then TF Bowley says that he came on the scene and he, and he saw Tippett's body lying there and he could tell he was dead. And he looked at his watch and it's one ten. Well, the whole this is supposed to be one fifteen when Oswald shoots Tippett, but it looks like really it's one oh eight. It looks like is the top between one oh six and one oh eight, and it's not possible that Oswald could have made it there if he left at one oh three, and he had to be there by one oh eight or even by, you know, one oh nine. It's not going to get there in six minutes. Okay, so you, you, he could have gotten there in ten minutes if he was walking quickly. Nobody saw Oswald, by the way, walking from Beckley to uh to um 10th and Patton. so that's not that's another thing and the people that did see Oswald claim to have seen someone who looked like oswald actually say he was coming from the other direction okay so that's so so there's that part of it you got the shells i mean the shells to me you know there's been a lot of energy spent on there's there's a couple of different shells uh uh you know and in, in terms of the, the types of ammunition uh, I remember looking at that, but that one's not, I mean, the, the whole thing comes down to, um, you, you've got all these people who's, who identified Oswald in a lineup. Now it was a very unfair lineup. Okay. So, but, but what I come back to on Oswald is a couple things, really, really two points, um, for it to be possible that Lee Harvey Oswald killed Tippett, you have to completely disregard time. You have to completely throw out all the evidence of time because it's, it conclusively proves if you're relying on the on people's watches to be accurate, then then conclusively Oswald could not possibly have killed Tippett. It's not possible. Now, the, the counter argument is, hey, it's 1963. It's not like today when everyone's phones are calibrated digitally because we're all on the same thing. You know, people's time, the, you know, their watches would have been off a little bit. And certainly I, that's true, right? But the question is, how far? How far do you take that? So if if you're going to rely on time evidence at all, it, that's very strong for Oswald. Uh, but some people just totally throw time evidence out. Okay. Well, then what are we left with? Um, I mean, you know, he did have a gun on him uh, when he's arrested. And, and the gun that's in evidence now has the same serial number as the one that they have uh, paperwork for. Right. So, so what has to be true if Oswald didn't do it then? Um, whoever did do it must have looked a little bit like Oswald, at least, because we got a bunch of people identifying that person. So, must have had some resemblance to Oswald. And the other thing is, you would have to believe, and this is where it's tough on the conspiracy side. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying this is a big fact to swallow to get like an average person to swallow, right? Which is they would have had to have substituted 
the gun that's in evidence in the National Archives now for the one Oswald had on him. Because Oswald did have a gun on him, but he claims that he bought that gun elsewhere. Well, for that to be true, they would have had to substitute the gun out, which, you know, who, who knows? Maybe that happened. They, all it takes is for them to have one person on the inside. Um, so I'm just saying, like, what I'm trying to do is identify, like, what has to be true here? Right, you know, right. get, if, if for for you to believe that it's Oswald, and and I and I go through in episode twenty seven. You know, both sides have a list of things that are not the easiest to believe that they have to believe in for to to be intellectually consistent. You know what I mean? Right. Well, it's just a strange event in the whole you know high strangeness of the JFK information, misinformation, disinformation thing. Is like what was. How does Tippett and Oswald factor into this whole thing? Because I mean, he clearly got killed. It's just like why? Well, clearly... here's the, here's another thing about Tippett, real quick. Um, you know, the whole story is that Tippett pulled this guy over because he matched the identification that of the of the sus of Oswald. Well, what's the identification? A five foot ten white guy. Right. So you're gonna pull over every five foot ten white guy on the street, okay? So, but anyway. Let's assume that that's true. Uh, the problem is the witness testimony for what they saw was that the car, the man's walking down the sidewalk, car pulls up to the man. And so if this man is worried about being caught by the police, you probably keep walking or maybe he would run. Right. Or if he's really crazy, maybe he would just turn around and shoot the cop. What this man did is he stopped when the police car stopped and he walked back to the car and the, the window the car windows are down on the passenger side. The guy puts his arms on the car window and leans in and starts talking to this cop. And then the cop gets out of the car and walks around. And by the time, you know, uh, he's got, he's got out and walked around. The guy then walks over and shoots him a couple, a few times. So, so the point is if you're on the run, it doesn't really make sense that you would go back to the cop. Right. And then the counter argument to that is, Lee Harvey Oswald's a crazy guy and he's a bad guy and you don't know what he's going to do. Right, right. I'm not sure how that, but it seems like they knew each other, however that, however that went down. I think so too. Yeah. But what, uh, you talk about the JFK, this book that came out, I mean, you've put out a lot of stuff this year. What do you, when you talk about an assassination chokehold, what are you referencing specifically that you yeah. think is in the, the investigation that is a chokehold? Yeah, so this, this is a result of, um, this just the backstory in this book is that I went to my first JFK assassination conference in Dallas last year. And while I was there, I ended up meeting pretty quickly and befriending uh, James D. Eugenio, Paul Blow, another guy named Mark Adamzik, who's an expert on the JFK Records Act. He's an attorney. Um, and we, you know, we just kind of started the conversation of like, what are the greatest hits? of things that have been proven because some things are inconclusive some things we don't you know it, there's evidence on both sides if you're being honest like it's it's kind of a coin toss right so the question is you know what are the things that are conclusively proven and they are inescapable right that's how we get chokeholds from like you can't get out of it you can't you know slip out of this one like this has been proven so in terms of what those are um, there's, there are 10 of them. Uh, I want to say that the ones that I wrote chapters on are for uh, Oswald could not have been on the sixth floor at 1230. 
Uh, and I also wrote another chapter for Oswald was impersonated. We have, there's about 20 instances of people impersonating Oswald, right? And there's a difference between saying somebody gave this report and then afterwards they saw Oswald on TV and thought this guy was Oswald. That's, that happens sometimes. It's another thing to say, uh, no, this person was actually pretending to be Oswald. You see the difference? There's one's like a mistaken, you know, a, a witness who may be wrong about, about whatever they saw. The other one is someone who's saying things to try to get people to think they're Oswald, right? right. So that, that happened a lot in this case. And we just got to figure out why. I mean, if anyone listens to the podcast, Ralph Yates, we cover in episode one, uh, is like the classic uh, example of Oswald being impersonated. So we talk about that. We talk about Oswald's ties to intelligence. You know, I, I will say too, um, you know, the podcast, I try not to talk about things that I have not yet covered in depth in the podcast because I don't really want to take a position until until I've had that level of study. Um, but there are some things in this book that, you know, if I didn't write the chapter, I'm not, you know, necessarily saying I believe it, although I'm sure most of this stuff's pretty solid. There's, there's nothing in here that's false. You know, I checked it for that. All the citations are in here. It's all, all that I'm saying is, um, you know, for chapters like uh, uh, Oswald was intelligence, you know, Oswald was connected to the CIA. Was, there's a chapter on that. I um, I want to unpack that a little bit more. So I'm not going to really yes, comment on that. And we'll do that in season two. Um, but the, the problem. He had a really fascinating life. I mean, he's dead I at doubt. 24, but his background is remarkable. I yeah. think 15 is when he's pictured with fairy. So right. he at least had some kind of 10-year relationship. Ferry was a really sus guy, too. So, I mean, no. it is, goes really strange, yeah. Definitely. David Ferry was definitely a suspect. But in this Chokehold's book, probably the um, the best thing about it is the last chapter, which I didn't write, so I can freely say that. Uh, but it, it covers all of the obstruction of justice in all the investigations, including the continuing obstruction of justice by by President Biden and before him, President Trump, and just following the JFK Records Act. They're straight up not following it at all. It's it's wild. They're just pretending that it doesn't apply to them. And uh, we're trying, you know, there's there's litigation right now trying to get, you know, a, a judge to uh, to accept it. But um, so far, there's still, you know, about 4000 classified documents. Well, they talk about uh, the case of uh, George Joannides, this guy that was... So this is crazy. The guy that, who was assigned to the House Select Committee on Assassinations as the CIA liaison is also the guy who was uh, in charge of, of basically coordinating the, uh, the DRE, which is the Cuban, um, the Cuban student group that was uh, having you know, conflicts and altercations with Oswald on the street. Oh, so the okay. guy who oversaw the Cubans on behalf of the CIA who were interfacing with Oswald, he's the one that uh, the HSCA uh, was working with to try to figure out that exact question. Who do we talk to about, about uh, Oswald, you know, about the CIA's ties to uh, Cuban exiles like, can, can you help us, Mr. Joannides, uh, find the, yeah. the appropriate party at the CIA? And he's going, no, I really can't. I wish I could help you, but I've looked and looked and I can't find it. 
And then they declassified documents recently showing George Joannides is the guy. It's the guy. He was lying. It was him the whole time. They must just be howling and cackling at the CIA about some of their some of their yeah. obfuscations. Like they're so brazen. Right. And some of the cleanup jobs. Like clearly, I mean And that's another thing. Another thing with like, you know, the Fred Litwins and Gerald Posners of the world who I don't want to say bad things about because I want to be cool with those guys, even though I know people don't want me to, okay. I want to be able to have dialogue with people. I think it's helpful to have dialogue with people that disagree with you. Um, but what I would say is, like, there's some specific things, especially you get into the medical evidence. They can really, they bring in their, you know, the John Latimers, and they bring in all these different, they talk about yaw, <laughs> and all these different, they, they get yaw, lost in a, yeah. a, a sea of details. But, like, why would the CIA continue to have to hide all these things? Why would they have to interfere with all these investigations if there wasn't something to hide? And then, you know, when you, again, like the John Stringers and Sandra Spencers of the world, uh, David Mantix of the world, you know, really hammer that home even more. Oh, and the brain, one more thing while I'm thinking about that, the brain uh, that, that they had in evidence was heavier than the average human brain, and it was supposed to have been blown out and hit by a bullet. Right. Why? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It, at all. Doug Horn thinks it's because it was a different brain. And and uh, okay, where would you get another brain from? What are the What are you saying? They went and killed someone and stole their brain? No, it was a medical teaching university. They had a brain room with all these brains of cadavers. It was easily accessible. Easily, yeah. So anyway, yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot there. I mean, there, you've put out so much this year, so people can go check that out. Put links to each one of your projects, podcast, book, and documentary. Um, do you have time for a few questions, Matt? Yes. Okay, let's see. This one is Sabrina asks, wasn't the JFK murder investigated by the government in 1970 or thereabouts included there as a conspiracy despite not coming around to any specific theory? I think we kind of covered that. That's the HSCA, yeah, 1978. And um, again, it's a political document. It's a compromise. The conclusion is completely meaningless. The evidence itself that was generated is interesting and worthy of study. Gotcha. And then Big J21, what do you think of the Garrison investigations? I think that you got to look at all the information. So my friend Jim DiEugenio is a big uh, big fan of Jim Garrison, right? And, um, and you know, obviously him and Fred Litwin have a big disagreement about that. Uh, Litman's got a whole book about it. Uh, On the Trail of Delusion is what he calls right. it. Right. So... Um, I think I, John I, John Barber knew knew Garrison, and actually, I think he re-put out a new documentary. Like yeah, the last week or two. I, so I know that, that I know that there are a lot of famous researchers, um, like on the conspiracy side, who don't like Garrison. I know um, that uh, uh, what's her name, uh, man, Mellon, Sylvia John Sylvia Marr was not a fan of Garrison. Um, uh, I want to say like Harold Weisberg didn't like Garrison. There's a lot of people that, and, and I, I think what history kind of shows us is that, you know, when you compare historical, the attitudes of historical figures with the attitudes of people today about certain subjects, it's easy for them to look way out of step, right? Kind of when they were on the wrong side of history. So for example, racism this is a great you know that really comes through now jim garrison wasn't racist uh and as far as i could tell 
but he was what we would call today extremely homophobic, right? So in other words, he enforced sodomy laws that were on the books. Like he would he would send people to jail for that for sure, yeah. right? So there's uh, that's an angle but that he that's pre- not far out of the sensibilities of that time. Sorry, people. Well, and and that's that's the angle that he's so he's kind of criticized for like he didn't like gay people, he was enforcing sodomy laws, and that's why he came out. You know, he came against Clay Shaw and David Ferry and these guys because you know it was really because they they were gay. Now because they were all gay, right? Now I I have not. I am going to cover that this season, and I have not yet gotten to it. But but I think Jim Garrison uncovered a lot of information, and I also think there's evidence. Of, of in the in the chokeholds book of of some uh you know some obstruction by the cia of his investigation now that's a disputed fact okay but but at any rate um we'll be talking he got about the that treatment more. you know garrison got the treatment calls yeah. threats right threatened his family got involved i think it ruined his marriage I, yeah he i would say his, his neck out yeah i would say i'm generally would consider myself on the pro garrison side of things but I need to look at the claims against Garrison to have the full picture. And, and by, the time, by the time I do a podcast on what Garrison was up to this season, I, we'll, we'll, I'll be able to have, a, I think, a good like synthesis of, of, of what's, what I really think. What was it? His book was On the Trail of the Assassins, right? Wasn't that it? Yes, On the Trail of the Assassins. Mm-hmm. Myself, I wouldn't mind reading through that. Yeah, and uh, I, mean, I mean, it really just comes down to like, okay, Clay Shaw, you know, did he have – cia ties i mean i think probably he had some ties um but was he the best vehicle uh probably not but better than i mean it generated a lot of uh a lot of material for study so that that's yeah but that, that's true but a lot was going down in new orleans i mean that's where a lot of these guys were from you know ferry oswald from new orleans so it was he was right there it kind of like guy uh, Bannister, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guy Bannister, yeah. super suspicious. Uh-huh. Um, so it was kind of like almost like a staging ground, almost for Dallas. right. We'll cover all that in New Orleans this season too. So that'll probably probably like January, February. We get into that. Maybe February. I got. I, I would bet. And then Bobo asks, "What do you think about multiple assassins who didn't know each other leading to anomalous wounds?" Like with the Prime Minister of Sweden, have you heard anything about that? Or any this is this is really the argument of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, right? Oswald did it, and then some other random person fired a shot that missed in the grassy knoll. Um, I don't think that that's credible. Uh, I I think that it would be a plot, um, just given some of the other things that are going on. Plus, just the the timing you know what what's the likelihood of that right what's the likelihood that they're going to do the shot at this exact location and then you know someone else is going to incidentally fire a shot at the same time so i think it's probably unlikely is is my view i think the jonathan knew knew, knew each other yeah also there's walkie talkies there that we see in dealey plaza there's a guy that's got a walkie talkie uh, on the, on the uh, railroad, obviously, there's the guy sitting next to Umbrella Man with a walkie-talkie, and Lee Bowers saw some folks in, in driving around with walkie-talkies in the uh, the parking lot behind where the picket fence is, behind the grassy knoll. Interesting. Jonathan asks, I have seen a recent picture of an Armalite AR-15 rifle possibly used. However, it was not issued. 
For the military in 1963, does Matt know or is aware of that weapon being on the scene? Have you heard anything like that? No. Um, I mean, you got you have three rifles that are kind of discussed. You have the Manlicker Carcano, that's the big one that's on the Wikipedia page, that was found on the other side of the building. You've got a Mauser, which where was that found vis-a-vis the Manlicker Carcano? Official story is there was no Mauser, but you know you've got. Seymour Weitzman, who is a firearms expert, saying there was a Mauser and then continuing to say it the same day and writing it in the same day affidavit. Same thing with Sheriff Boone. Uh, they said it was a Mauser and it was reported widely it was a Mauser. But, you know, we don't have a Mauser. So that's just, you get, it is what it is. And then there was uh, the, I want to say like the week before um, Buell Wesley Frazier had brought his firearm, his rifle. Uh, into the depository for whatever reason, and that's sometimes discussed as being in the building. Uh, but no, I don't know anything about an AR. Have you ever heard of like the whole story about the driver having a gun and shooting around? I think it was like a yeah Cooper thing. I, I don't know. I didn't, yeah, I Bill Cooper was... talked about that. There's a guy named um. So th- there's a, a book called Mortal Error, I believe. Uh, and it was made into a, a movie that's been on Netflix for a long time that basically pushes the theory that the Warren Report got it right, you know, it was Oswald, except the headshot uh, was from the, the Secret Service driver, I believe, Bill Greer, uh, and and he was turning around with his gun, and he accidentally fired the headshot that killed the president, and it was an accident, right? But... I, the the problem with that is to you can talk about you i mean i'm really digging into this to give an answer to it right i mean let's really look at it no, i appreciate it yeah. uh, the 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 problem with that is that you know you would expect to see uh a wound from that angle which if he's shooting from that angle it'll probably come out more of the side of the president's head well maybe that you yeah, know maybe that matches what warren report folks are saying but where's the entry wound is there an entry wound over here somewhere? I mean, there's no evidence of anyone seeing that. By the way, there's three people who are on the record saying there was an entry wound right here, right above the president's hairline on the top right side of his head, including the mortician who prepared the body who said that he had to put wax in the hole, <laughs> right? So Tom Robinson from Gawler's Funeral Home. Um, so, yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot. There would be there would be an addition to a another wound. I think it was in one of the autopsy reports of the initial that he was shot in the back, an entry, and in the neck. And right, the right, right. So it's well, almost like you got hit by bullets. Yeah, bullets. right. Yeah. So, so, but on the on the the Secret Service thing, I mean, it comes down to that they're not going to cover it up. If it was a Secret Service agent, perhaps they would not. And it was an accident. It could be proven that it was an accident. Perhaps they wouldn't have served their whole life in prison. You know what I mean? Perhaps they, you know, they just would have, their name would have been mud or whatever. But, but I don't think the government would go to the extent to, to help anybody for an accident ever. Right. Uh, I think they it would. It doesn't account for the other bullets, too. It doesn't account for, doesn't account for the other bullets. And it also doesn't account for all of these weird spycraft things that are happening in all these places. Yeah. Like all the weird things that are happening all over the place. There were other Oswalds, like in Chicago, Miami. There were other yeah. maybe other attempts on his life. Other like Oswalds, we- meaning there were other people who were potentially in a position to be a patsy. 
much well said. These things are all these things are all disputed, by the way. But th that would be um, Thomas Valley in Chicago and a guy named Polycarpo Lopez in Tampa. Right. And there's articles about them too, like they were seeded into newspaper articles as right you know, troubled or dangerous or something about them. I have to go back and look, but that's like in the even addition in addition to all the 20 Oswald sightings and like that, it's like just so much strange intel stuff going on. It's really off the charts. But Matt, we are at the 56 minute. What can people look forward to on your second season of solving JFK on the podcast? Yeah, uh, you know, what we'll do is uh, actually one of the first things I'm going to do is talk about Paul Landis out of the gate. The, he's the Secret Service agent who claims that he found the magic bullet on the back of the car and then he put it on the stretcher. So I actually had a chance to interview him briefly mm -hmm. in Pittsburgh and uh, I'll share my views on him, which I think are probably not what a lot of people would expect them to be. And uh, and then I and the next episode I have a little uh, report from the 60th anniversary conference, <laughs> which is kind of neat because we get sort of a, a lot of interviews with a lot of different interesting people. Um, I got Alec Baldwin and Rob Reiner in that, and, oh, wow. and conspiracy folks I got Josiah Thompson and Doug Horn, so that'll be cool. And then um, and then w the season once we really get going here, we we look at Oswald as a kid. We go all the way back to the beginning. Who was Oswald really? We look at him and as a kid. We look at his time in the Marines. We look at uh, his uh, going to the Soviet Union and, and what was he doing over there. We look at his life when he got back, when he first went to Dallas and got, you know, got a job there and started to meet Ruth Payne and all these people and then went to New Orleans. What was he doing when he was in New Orleans? And then, again, this whole conversation about going to Mexico City. Did he go to Mexico City or was that somebody else? What's the evidence say? Um, and then, you know, when he got back to Dallas, what was he up to and following him all the way. And then also looking at impersonations, ties to intelligence. And, uh, you know, when did he first start uh, following communism and, and when did he learn how to speak Russian and all, all of those kind of fun things. We talk about Ruth Payne and George DeMorenschild and, you know, Guy Bannister, David Ferry, Sergio Arcacha Smith, remember that name, probably the main Cuban exile. Before I before I started my study of this season, I didn't appreciate. I always think of uh, Antonio Vecchiana because he's the guy that says he saw Oswald with Maurice Bishop or David Atlee Phillips. But but really, uh, Sergio Arcacha Smith is the main connector between uh, if there was a plot uh, for you know elements of of the cia or uh, folks working out of guy banister's office david ferry to you know to kill kennedy that plot involves sergio arcacha smith so he's a big name cool well, i'm looking forward to it and i will put links to all these uh book documentary and podcast in the show notes but again uh thanks so much for your time matt matt crumpton yeah thank you thank you JFK podcast great job thanks so much Appreciate Appreciate it. It. thank you thank you for having me on man and people can contact you through. Do you have like a website or social media? If they want, have any yeah, yeah. I'm on. I'm on Twitter. Is the easiest way to reach me. I'm the most responsive on Twitter because that's kind of where I live my life. Uh, I'm also on Instagram, TikTok a little bit, YouTube. I'm on, but I don't really interact. Facebook, same thing. Uh, I'm on there as well. And then uh, solving JFK podcast at uh, dot com for all the transcripts and sources. You can see the citations behind all of my propositions of fact, and, and that's pretty much it. 
cool. So the website's there too. So I'll put that in there. And it's again, Matt Crumpton, C-R-U-M-P-T-O-N of the Solving GFK podcast. Thanks so much. Stay yes, there. sir. Thanks, William. Appreciate, Appreciate you, man. You. Stay there. Appreciate you. Stay there.